Can I just kind of talk to you today? Can we, Martin, can we move this down a little bit lower? I feel like I'm miles away and I want to see the whites of your eyes. Thank you, my friend. So, I'm just going to talk a little bit. My brother is the teacher in the family. And I'm the preacher or the talker. Or the, I don't quite know what I am, actually. We're, we're yet to discover what I am. I'm the handsome brother. We know that. So, here's the thing. Many, many churches, many people, we want the move of the Holy Spirit. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. We want the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We just don't want the Holy Spirit. And it's a bit like wanting wet without water. It doesn't work that way. If you want to experience the power of God to change lives and set captives free, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings that power into a room. He is the one that takes everything that Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago and causes it to show up right then in your experience and in front of your eyes. And this is the charisma of the Holy Spirit. Charisma, that word means gift. And any Bible students in here, and I know there's many, will understand this. The word charis means grace. And the, when you stick the word ma, the little two letters M-A on the end, it, it takes the grace of and that word ma means a specific moment or a specific incident. So, for example, we understand this. Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, standing at that whipping post 2,000 years ago, by his stripes we're healed. This is a big 100, 180 degrees sweeping statement. By his stripes we're healed. We understand that. That's Paris. That's the grace of God standing at that whipping post. But the charisma says right now what he's healing is your arthritic shoulder. That's God, the Holy Spirit, taking the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and right now doing this thing to that person or for that person. And it's the manifestation. It's the way that you can see and know that God's grace is still available because right now he's taking your depression away. Right now that spirit of fear is lifting off of your shoulders. Right now he's moving in your life. And the charisma comes through relationship with the Holy Spirit. As you get to know him, his gifts begin to operate in your life. And it comes through friendship because the anointing does many, many things. It's as diverse as the colors of a rainbow. But what it is, is the fruit of friendship. And when you spend time with the Lord and you spend time in his presence and you get to know him, the fruit of that experience will be the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Because anointing is a spiritual word but it literally means to smear or to cover. You can anoint a cricket bat. You take it and you rub the oil in it, and then it won't crack as easily. To be specific about it, you can anoint a strawberry. If you've ever been to the German market in Birmingham, it'll be coming soon. It seems to get earlier every year. The Christmas market seems to start in October. They take those strawberries and they anoint them in chocolate, and then they sell them. It's only 15 pounds of strawberry, but I tell you what, an anointed strawberry is a blessing. I mean, you you bite into it, you roll it around in your mouth a little bit, you pray in tongues. I mean, it's too good to just swallow a 15 pounds of bite. But it's an anointed strawberry. It literally means to be smeared or to be covered. When you and I spend time with God, you get smeared, you get covered in his presence. The Holy Spirit is a person. He does powerful things, but he's a person, not a power. See, here's the problem. When we view the Holy Spirit as power, we'll want to use him course we will. Lord, I need your power in my life. I want to use you. I, I want to see someone healed. 
Holy Spirit, give me power. But when you see that the Holy Spirit is a person, you'll want him to use you. Holy Spirit, here I am. I'm available. If you need someone, please know, touch my shoulder. Here I am. John G. Lake was a very powerful man of God. In fact, I was just in Portland very, very recently, a week or two ago. I lose track now, but recently. And I went to his house. John Grantham Lake, he was born in Canada, moved to America when he was quite young. And he went over to South Africa, and they saw incredible miracles. In fact, he was the guy that when there was a massive plague breaking out, I'm telling you the story. Do you know who John G. Lake is? Wave at me if you know who he is. For the rest of us, I've got some stories to tell you. So John Lake was a Canadian preacher, moved to America when he was quite young, went to South Africa. And God moved in this man's life in a way that I think probably him and Smith Wigglesworth stand out amongst anyone that I've read about since Bible times. And there was a plague that broke out in South Africa. I forget which one it was, but it was awful. And people were dying um, en masse. And you couldn't carry the dead bodies to bury them without catching the illness. And so the United Nations were sending personnel in there, and their doctors and nurses, they were dying en masse too, so they didn't want to go in. And John Lake and his team would go, and everyone that was, had died, they would carry them out, and they'd bury them themselves. And then they'd go pray for people that were sick, and those sick people, many of them would be healed. And in fact, the doctors came over and said to him, how are you doing this? What's going on in your team? And he said this, he said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And the doctor said, what? And he said, all right, let me prove it. Let me show you. Put some of the plague on my hand. And so they were hesitant to do that because as far as they were aware, it's a death sentence because they didn't know that Jesus changes everything. See, under, before Jesus, the leper touched you and you were made sick. After Jesus, you touched the leper and the leper was made healed. But they didn't know that. And so they finally put some of the plague, some spittle or whatever from someone on his hand, they put it under a micro microscope and it's got, you know, the bacteria swirling around. And then he prayed and said, look again. And it was all dead in his hand. And so he went from there to Spokane, Washington and started these healing homes. They saw 100,000 medically documented miracles or healings and miracles in five years. That's about 60 a day. In fact, Washington, D.C., the government of America, declared Spokane, Washington to be the healthiest city in the nation. He then left there, went to Portland, Oregon, did the same thing. They changed their healthiest city to Portland. It then became, assessed by the government, the healthiest city in the nation. He famously said this. He said, the elect, he said what the anointing is in the spirit, electricity is in the natural. So they parallel each other. And I love that description. I'm going to take it a little bit further in a minute because as he would point out, electricity was here a long time before we discovered it. Long before, long before you went home and you cooked your popcorn today or you warmed up your coffee or whatever it was that you turned on your fan. Long before you had any clue that that was doable, electricity was here. It was here from the minute God said, let there be light. We just hadn't discovered it yet. And the anointing's the same way. There are things that God can do. There is an anointing by the Holy Spirit that is available, but we haven't seen it yet. We haven't learned how to access that and to walk with that yet. And so John Lake said, and it's very accurate, I believe, that just like electricity is God's power in the natural, the anointing is, is, God, is God's power in the spirit. 
However, I'll take it a step further because electricity doesn't have a personality. So you can't fellowship with electricity. It's a bit like, who's that guy that was on the mountain and the wind and the earthquake and the fire came? You don't know either? Oh, my God. Elijah. Thank you, angel. I'm not an angel. That's my wife is angel. And um, so Elijah was on the mountain and God did an earthquake. And the mountain shook. And the Bible says, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. The Lord did the earthquake, but he wasn't in it. And I forget the chronology. Along came wind. Great, great whirlwind. God did the wind, but he wasn't in the wind. And then came fire. God did the fire, but he wasn't in the fire. And then came a still small voice. And the Lord was in the voice. And interestingly, God set Elijah free from both the spirit and the person of Jezebel, not with a miracle, but with a word. The most powerful things, the most lasting things that God has done in my life haven't been demonstrations of his power. They've been manifestations of his presence when he's standing beside me and he whispers something into my ear and he says something to me. And it's those moments, those truths have brought more freedom to my life than anything you could ever imagine. Although I've seen God do powerful things. I'll tell you some stories in a minute. But there is something incredible about the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Would you turn, please, in your Bible to either 1 Corinthians, last chapter, or 2 Corinthians? We'll know when we get there. Just start turning, and we'll confirm nearer the time. I'm not hearing turning. Oh, you got an electronic? Okay. For the millennials, the Bible is now available in print. So open your Bible or turn it on. Okay, yes, 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. Of course, if you were spiritual, you'd have just known. But that's okay. So here the Apostle Paul is attempting the unattemptable. He is trying to describe God to people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think about my beautiful wife over here, Angela, my angel. If you were to say to me, John, we want you to describe Angela in one paragraph. To be honest with you, I'd be stumped. We've been married 26 years. I've known her for 28, 29 years. I know a lot of things about her. She's Canadian. She's very pretty. She's got blonde hair. She's incredibly prophetic. She's a great organizer. She's a wonderful wife, wonderful mother. She loves Great Danes. I mean, there's so many things that I could say about Angela. How do I, how do I take a 26-year marriage and wrap it up in a paragraph? It's very difficult to do because I wouldn't quite know where to start. If you say, John, we want you to tell us about your wife in one sentence. Now where do I go? Do I, what, what possible angle do I come at? Do I kind of go deep and say, well, you know, she just, you know, loves the Lord and, and prays a lot. Do I go there? Do I go kind of shallow and say she's got really nice legs? I mean, where, where do you pitch this in one sentence? If you say, John, we want one word. One word to describe your wife. Do I go Canadian? Do I say blonde? Do I say Christian? Do I say, well, how do you sum up a 26-year marriage in one word? Very difficult. Here, the Apostle Paul attempts the unattemptable, and he's going to sum up God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in one word. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. He says this. He says, the grace, everyone say grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said this, if you know nothing else about Jesus, know his grace. Hanging on the cross, that was grace. 
ever living to make intercession for us, that's grace. Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That is a manifestation of the grace of God. Jesus, in one word, if you say overriding, overarching characteristic of the Lord Jesus is grace. The love of God, specifically the Father. Paul said, if you encounter God the Father, you're going to encounter love. God is not, as my brother would say and preach at my church one time, a big stick God playing whack-a-mole, waiting for you to get something wrong, a whack there and a whack the other. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world gives an impression of God as a vengeful, spiteful, hateful person, but actually God is love. And when you encounter him, you will be so overwhelmed, so much so, the Bible says we have no fear of the day of judgment because of the love of God, because as Jesus is, so are we in this world. So grace is Jesus. Love is the Father. He said, with the Holy Spirit, he said, if you know nothing else about the Holy Spirit, you need to know the communion, the friendship. The Holy Spirit wants to commune with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to be your friend. And there is something incredible about the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it's in that place of friendship and in that place of relationship, in the still, small voice, in the power of the secret place, that God anoints you, that God empowers you, that God equips you for service. And you could put it this way, God's power is a gift that his presence deposits. The anointing is the fruit of time in his glory. And I think many times we want to know the power, we want to know the anointing, but we're not so interested in the communion of the Holy Spirit because that takes time. But God is drawing us back into friendship and into fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, anyone that knows God and that walks with God, people will see Jesus through that person. Let me tell you a story. A number of years ago, I was living in America, and I was flying early. Well, in fact, I'll tell you the whole story. I'd been preaching the last four days in a town um, called Longview. It's about 120 miles east of Dallas. And my flight the next morning was leaving at about 6.30 in the morning. And so Longview's over here, and then you drive this way. Here's Dallas, and the airport is on this side. It's called DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth. It's stuck between Dallas and Fort Worth. So to get to the airport, you got to go through a huge, great city. And it is, it is, I mean, just chaos in the morning with the rush hour traffic. And so I made the decision, even though by the time the meetings had finished on a Wednesday night, they didn't finish about 11 o'clock. Don't panic. We're not going to go that long tonight. I know there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. So we're going we're gonna to stay on the, on the sermon side. But I decided to do the drive the night before because I just didn't want to deal with the traffic. And so I got to my hotel room probably at about maybe 1.30 in the morning, thereabouts, quarter to two. If you heard me tell this story before and that timing's a little bit different, I'm getting the gist of it. I was still wired from the meetings and the drive and the dinner. And so it was probably 2.30 before I finally fell asleep. And in order to make my flight on time, I had to be on the flight, was leaving at 6.30, which meant I had to drop off my rental car at about probably 5.15, which meant I had to leave the hotel at 5 in the morning, which meant I had to get in the shower at 4.45. And yes, ladies, all this magic happens in 15 minutes. At 4.45, which meant if I was going to take any time with the Lord, I was going to have to get up at 4.30 in the morning to do it. And I'm very pleased to say I did. 
And as my story goes on, you'll know why. And I got up, my alarm went off, and I peeled myself out of the bed, propped my eyes open, got on my knees, read a chapter or two from the Bible, said a few prayers. I cannot say it was a glorious encounter with the Lord. I didn't get deep, sweet revelations, but I read my Bible and I prayed. Got in the shower, got ready, dropped off the rental car, got to the airport, and I'm, I mean, I am so tired, I don't know if I'm Arthur or Martha. I'm getting ready to get in the plane. They call my row number, and I don't remember what seat I was, but let's say I was seat, you know, 15B. And so I'm going down the aisle, and I've got my bag, and, and, and the guy in 15A is already sitting there. And he looked to be African. I mean, his clothing and everything. I thought, well, this guy's clearly from Africa. And so we kind of said hello to each other, and he looked like he was trying to sleep a little bit. So I pulled out my book, which turns out was a novel, and I put my bag in the overhead bin and, and um, sat there for a little bit, and we you know, kind of both got our eyes shut and went through the, the safety speech that the stewardesses give and whatnot. We get a little bit up in the air, and this guy, I, I, I pull out my book and start to read it. I was in the beginning pages. And he digs me in the ribs and says, what are you reading? And I wasn't trying to be rude, but give me a little credit. I'd had about two hours sleep at 6.30 in the morning. And so I said, it's a book. And he said, yes, thank you. I can see that. He said, what kind of book is it? And I said, well, it's a, it's a novel. And he said, what's it about? And I felt like saying, well, if you let me read it, maybe I would know. But I didn't. And I was still slightly reeling for the fact that my, my first statement had seemed a little bit rude. It was unintentional, just, you know tiredness overtook. And so I said, well, I said, it's, a, it's about a Christian lawyer in a court case and this, that, and the other. And he says, oh, looks at me a little bit skeptically. He says, are you a Christian then? I said, yes, sir, I'm a Christian. He said, are you a real one? I said, I'm as real as I know how to be. He said, oh. He said, do you go to church? I said, yes, I go to church. Regularly. He said, yes. I didn't want to tell him I preach about 300 services a year because I'd just been quite rude, you know, moments before. So I thought I'd leave that one in the bag. So I said, yes, I go to church regularly. He said, is your church on fire? I said, yes, it's on fire. He said, do they believe in the power of God? I said, yes, they believe in the power of God. And this man, it turns out through conversation, was Nigerian. If you've ever met a Nigerian Christian, there's a certain fire in the eyes, which is both wonderful and intimidating at the same time. And this fire is starting to spark, and he's rising up in his seat a little bit. We're now about 30,000 feet above the ground. And he says, do you read your Bible? I said, yes, I read my Bible. He said, do you read it every day? And I mean, we're going, we're going back and forth at each other. He said, yes, I read it every day. He said, does the Lord speak to you through his holy word? I said, yes, he speaks to me through his holy word. He said, and do you pray? Yes, I pray. Do you pray every day? Yes, I pray every day. He said, have you prayed today? I said, yes, I prayed today. He said, did the Lord speak to you? Well, this is where it got a little bit gray. But at this moment, I'm not ready to give up. And so I said, yes, the Lord spoke to me today. He said, huh. He said, did the Lord tell you that you'd be sitting next to me on this airplane this morning? Well, he had me. The Lord hadn't told me that I was going to be sitting next to this annoying man on the airplane this morning. And so he said, well, he said, he said, aha, finger in the air and everything. He said, aha. He said, the Lord told me I'd be sitting next to you on the airplane this morning. And he sat back in his seat, you know, all pleased with himself. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. Sure, the Lord told you that you'd be, I mean, how spiritual do you need to be on a commuter flight? from Dallas to New York or Pittsburgh or wherever it was going, that you'd be sitting next to someone. That doesn't take a great deal of prayer. And so he said, yes. He said, the Lord told me I'd be sitting next to a young evangelist from England. Where are you from? I said, England. 
He said, the Lord told me that you were called to preach the gospel when you were very young. How old were you when you were called to preach the gospel? I said, six. He said, the Lord told me that this and this and this has happened in your life. He said, am I right? I said, yes, you're right. Now, but for the fact that we're now 35,000 feet above the ground, I'd have jumped out the window. This is a very intimidating man to sit next to because you're always wondering what's coming next. It's amazing how quickly you can repent, isn't it? I mean, take communion later, but you can repent in a hurry. And so he said, well, the Lord told me this about you so that when I tell you what's coming next, you will know it's from him. And he then began to tell me three or four things that were coming next. I did write them down, and I can't tell you they all came to pass. But to be honest with you, I don't particularly remember what they were. Truth be told, it wasn't anything dramatically life-changing. didn't set the course of my life. But I will tell you this. My five-minute conversation with that man changed me and impacted me more than some of my Bible school instructors did in two years. Because I don't know much about that man. I know that he's Nigerian. I don't know if he was visiting America. I don't know if he lived there. I don't know if he was a pastor or a businessman, a father, a grandfather. I don't know anything about him other than the fact that he's Nigerian. And more importantly, he knows God. That man was a friend of God. And so when our conversation finished, he reclined his seat, the three centimeters you get in economy class. And I did the same. I opened my book and, and um, pretended to read it. To be honest with you, to this day, I can't tell you a word about that book. Because the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, I want to know you like that man knows you. Can I be your friend? Can I know you like that? I don't know much about him, but I know that he knows God. And in just a moment, in just a moment, he changed my life, and it only took him five minutes because he's a friend of God. And there is something about that communion. There's something about that relationship with God that we are so busy today. And here's the reality, my friend. Anything Satan can't destroy, he'll distract. He can't destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But he sure can distract us. And it's fun to kind of poke at the church, isn't it? But let's poke at ourselves for a minute. He can't destroy you because you're a child of God. Even if you lose, you win. But he can sure distract you. And I think God gets, or the devil, excuse me, is happy for us to be so busy that we run around and we have knowledge and we sing songs and we work hard and we give money and we do all these things. But it's the people that do know their God. Daniel 11 verse 32 says that will be strong and do exploits. I want to be someone that knows God. When the religious leaders saw Peter and John, says this. It was not very flattering, to be honest with you. He said, they're unlearned and ignorant men. Gives me comfort. He says, they're unlearned and ignorant men. He says, but they took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. They could tell these people had been with Jesus. And I experienced that in my life in a different way. Many times people make assumptions about me because of my accent. You're probably wondering, how on earth are they brothers? We have different accents. Well, we are brothers. But I lived in North America for quite a long time. And my accent just kind of morphed to where it is today. And so now when I get on the train or I go to Asda or whatever, people will talk about, oh, I've been to America. I'll start making comments about the president or Disney World or whatever it is they choose to talk about. And so in short conversations, I don't correct people because the story gets a little bit tiresome to tell. But people make an assumption about me based on my accent. And that's fine. They can assume what they choose to assume. Here's what I really want. I want people to hear me talk and say, his citizenship must be heaven. It must be heaven. He sounds like he's been with Jesus. 
He sounds like he spent time with him. I want people to look at me and say, he might be unlearned and ignorant, but he knows God. If I have anything else I'd love people to be able to say about me, it's this. He's a friend of God. And in that friendship and in that place of relationship, God equips us. He anoints us. He empowers us. And the Bible speaks of a day in Psalm 24 where an entire generation will ascend the hill of the Lord, stand in the holy place, seek the face of God. And the Bible says when we do that, we will open doors and we'll open gates for the king of glory to come in. What are these doors and what are these gates? Well, here's the reality. My house has a door. My city has a gate. Individually, I can open the door to the things of God in my life, in my family, in my home. But it takes all of us together to open a gate for the king of glory to come into our city. I can't do that by myself. You can't do it by yourself. But God wants to move in this surrounding region, and it takes you and it takes me. He needs your fire. He needs your relationship with him. He needs your intimacy with him. He needs you to know the communion of the Holy Spirit because the fruit of that experience is the anointing. Remember I said a while ago, the anointing is the fruit of friendship. So I want to close by talking for just, how long have I got? What time? You did say midnight, right? Okay. So we'll go just a little bit more. I want to talk just for a minute about three levels of prayer. You ready for this? And we'll look at me. Say, sock it to me, baby. Okay, I believe I will. So there are three levels of prayer. And we'll say three levels. Come on, help me. I've been preaching all day. This is my third service. Three levels. The first level of prayer is the flesh. And the flesh is not bad. We tend to think of flesh, oh, that's just the flesh. Well, if it's just the flesh, it's not great. But if your flesh doesn't get up, if you physically don't get up and pray when the alarm goes off, make your cup of coffee, put on your slippers and your dressing gown, and open your Bible and pull out your everyday with Jesus. If you don't actually physically start praying, there's no prayer going on. You know when people say, I can't come to the prayer meeting tonight, Pastor Jamie, but I'll be with you in spirit. Do you know what that means? Nothing. You can't come to the prayer meeting in spirit. If you don't turn up in the flesh, you're not there at all. Because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if your spirit leaves your body, you're not going to the prayer meeting, you're going to heaven. So don't give me this, well, I just, you know, I'm there in spirit. No, you weren't. So flesh isn't bad. It's the starting point. But the flesh is the realm of distraction. And we've all been there. You're praying in the morning. You're saying your prayers. You're doing your thing. You read three chapters of the Bible. And for the life of you, you don't know if you just read Chronicles or Corinthians. Been there, right? Done your every day with Jesus. And you haven't got a clue what it was about. And you pray your prayers. And it's a bit like when you're driving home and you have this panic because you pull into the driveway. How many red lights did I go through? Because I don't remember stopping for a single one. And you think, you know, what, what went on there? You're distracted. And so you get up and you say your prayers and you, you have your conversation with the Lord and you read the Bible, but there's no desire, there's no passion, there's no, you're not connected to it. You're doing it, praise the Lord, you're doing it. Commending. Commendable? Commend, commendable. But there's another realm of prayer that we need to get to. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it's the realm of the soul. So the first level of prayer is the realm of the flesh. It's the realm and the place of distraction. You're praying, but your mind's everywhere. You're thinking about cutting the grass, calling your mother. You're thinking about what you need to do with the dog and tests at work and holiday next week. And, and you're just, you're everywhere. But if you'll stick at it, and if you'll stay at it a little bit longer, and you're, you'll just have some tenacity, give it a little bit of time, 
and your breakthrough to the next realm. And this is the realm of the soul. The flesh is the realm of distractions. The soul is the realm of desire. Everyone say desire. So in other words, you're saying the same things you were saying over there, but now you actually desire the thing that you're saying you desire. So over there you're saying, I love you, Lord, but you're thinking about everything else. But here in the realm of the soul, when you say, I love you, Lord, your desire, your emotion is connected to it. You read the Bible, and you begin to take in what you're reading. You start to pray for revival, and rather than just being a token gesture, oh, Lord, we need revival, what I'm really thinking is, I don't want to mismatch it today. You say, oh, Lord, I want revival, and you want it. You want revival. You're hungry for it. You're excited about it. You're looking forward to it. You're longing for it, because in that place is the place of, of desire, and you're praying for people, and you're desperate to see them changed. And you want to see those things turn around. You're hungry for a move of God in your school, in your workplace, and wherever it might be. And it's not just words. You're not just saying things with your physical body. You want it. I remember a number of years ago, I went to Spain. A friend of mine has a place in Spain. I oftentimes go there for prayer retreats. It's tough. I know, suffering for Jesus like this. But, you know, someone has to just carry that cross and do it. And so I like to go to the Costa de... Doesn't this sound terrible? It's much more spiritual than your snickering is implying. So I like to go to the Costa del Sol, and I like to walk and pray. And so I stay in my friend's apartment, and then what I tend to do is I get up at about, I don't know, 7 in the morning or so, and I'll spend probably a couple of hours in the Word, reading the Bible and going through different things. And, and then I put on my shoes and my shorts and my T-shirt, and I go out and I go for a walk. And there's a town there called La Cala. And there's a boardwalk that they built that goes all the way through to some town a little bit a ways away. And it's about 16 to 20 kilometers there and back. And it's beautiful. You've got the hills to your right. You've got the water to your left. And so I'll have my headphones in. I'll just walk and pray, you know, eight kilometers or so. And I get to this one particular town, and there's a very nice pancake place. So I have pancakes, and then I'll turn around and I'll walk back. And that usually takes me till about 1 o'clock or so in the afternoon. Then I'll go have a shower. I'll take a couple of hours in the afternoon to just kind of chill. Then I'll have an early dinner, and then I usually go back out to the boardwalk and just do some more praying. And that's what I like to do when I go on a prayer retreat. And so this one particular time, I left on a Sunday evening, got there about 10 o'clock at night. So the Monday morning, I get up, I go through my routine, and I'm walking, and I'm praying. And, and the Tuesday, the same, and the Wednesday, I was flying back on a Saturday morning. Thursday evening, I'm walking this way. So Marbella is behind me, Lacal is in front of me. Hills to the left, ocean to the right. It's dusk. It's probably about 8 o'clock at night. And, you know, it's kind of starting to get dark. And I had my headphones in, and the music's playing. And, I mean, I'm praying for revival. I'm praying for the move of God. I'm thinking about the outpouring of the Spirit. And I was as excited as you can be in public without someone coming and, you know, whipping a straitjacket on you. So I'm going this way. And there's a distance, probably 80 yards from the person behind the person in front. And I'm saying, God, I want to see a move of God at Gateway. Lord, pour out your Spirit in Birmingham. Lord, let the United Kingdom be the land of hope and glory again. Let us see the miraculous again. God, let people come running to Jesus. I mean, I am praying, and I am hot, and I'm sweaty. And I'm going this direction. And finally, I had prayed out. And I was, I was excited that I was excited. Because if you spend that money and time, and Angela's let me go, and the, you know, a church is happy for me to go, and, and you don't want to go, and it's Thursday, and you still, you know, you're over here, and you're, in the flesh and you're distracted and, you know, kind of thinking about everything else. So I was glad that I'd gotten to the point where I wanted the thing I was praying about. And as I'm going this way, walking this direction, music playing, saying, God, send revival. And I'm excited that I'm excited. 
And I'm happy that I'm passionate for the things of God. I finally get quiet and I hear the beautiful voice of the Holy Spirit say, John, when are you going to get quiet and let me give you the desire of your heart? And all of a sudden I realize there's a third realm of prayer. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it's the realm of the Spirit. The flesh is the realm of distraction. The soul is the realm of desire. The spirit is the realm of dwelling. Where it's not you talking to God, it's God talking to you. In fact, in that place, you're still, and you know that he's God. Where you're not pouring out your heart to him, but he's pouring out his heart to you. And the reality is this, my friend. Thirst isn't quenched by proclaiming how thirsty you are. Hunger isn't satisfied by telling everyone and shouting and screaming, I'm hungry. Hunger is satisfied by eating. Thirst is quenched by drinking. And I'm not going to do it because it would get messy, although right now I wouldn't mind tipping this cup of water all over my head. But if I were to try and drink from this glass while carrying on talking, what do you think is going to happen? So I just go through the actual water and I'm just a mess. I'm going to make a mess. Very little water is going to go in, right? It's going to go everywhere but in. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in that realm of the Spirit, you drink and you receive of the anointing. And it's time spent in that, what the Bible describes as the secret place in Psalm chapter 91, where Jesus said, when you pray, go into a closet, shut the door, and your Father who sees in secret will reward in the open. And in that secret place, in that place of intimacy, something happens to you. You don't know it because you're in the glory. And the glory is known. It's not felt. His anointing is felt. That's when you shake. That's when you tremble. That's when you catch on fire. But in his presence, it's him ministering to your spirit. And it's God speaking to you. But it's the most powerful place on planet Earth. It's where Jesus visited every time he went up the mountain in the morning, rising up a great while before day. And he would go to a quiet place alone. So much so that when he came down, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they had noticed a correlation between Jesus going up to that mountain alone and coming down and doing things like walking on water and opening blind eyes. And they saw the connection that every time Jesus operated in power, he'd come from that mountain. He'd come from that place with the Lord. The Bible says this, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll witness me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Because of the blood of Jesus, you and I have access to the secret place. But many of us are too much like Moses. You remember Moses in the Bible? He, um, he built a tabernacle. It's called the Tabernacle of the Congregation. It was set outside the camp, a little bit of a distance away. Called again, the Tabernacle of the Congregation. By implication, who is the Tabernacle of the Congregation for? The congregation. But here's the problem. Moses was the only one that went. And so you go to the tabernacle of the congregation, and only Moses goes. And in fact, here's what would happen. When Moses would go out to pray, everyone else would get up, stand at their tent door, dressing gown slippers, cup of coffee, and they would watch Moses walk across the desert and go into the tent. And you think, why are they watching that? It's not very exciting watching someone pray, especially because he would go in there, and he would go into the tent, close it behind him, do the zipper, so you can't even see him praying. He's just in a tent. So why are they watching? They were watching because every time Moses went in that tent, a cloud would come down and rest on it, and God would speak to him in that place. They weren't watching Moses' prayer. They were watching God's glory come down. That's what they stood at their tent door to see. 
And that's wonderful, and that's great, and many of us do that. Oh, there's someone coming to preach. Let's go hear them. Oh, there's a big event at the NEC. Let's go. Reinhard Bonnke's coming. Let's go hear what's happening. Let's go see the anointing. And that's great, but actually that tent was supposed to be where anyone that wanted to meet with God can go. And in the church world, there are two groups of people. There are the lookers and there are the goers. And I don't just want to look at someone else's relationship with the Lord. I don't just want to look at that African man and his great relationship with the Lord. I want to be a goer. I want to know him for myself. And that comes from breaking through the realm of the flesh, sticking in the soul, the place of desire long enough to where something changes about you and you get in that place of stillness and the presence of God comes and he ministers to you and he fills you to overflowing and he gives you the desire of your heart. I'll close with a story. Angela and I were preaching a number of years ago at the First Assembly of God in Springfield, Illinois. And we decided to have a day. We'd been doing a lot of traveling. So I was preaching that night. It was a Friday night. And we decided that we were just going to have the day by ourselves, alone with the Lord. We were going to eat a little bit of salad, which for me is a huge sacrifice. I hate salad, but we just kind of wanted to keep things simple. I'd rather just not eat, to be honest with you. But Angela, I did a fruit fast once, and Angela said, I'm the only person she's ever met that breaks their fast, eating fast, to not eat. I just, I'd rather not eat. But anyway, so that day, we had a salad. And we just woke up, and we spent a lot of time. We had music playing in the background. We had our Bibles open. We weren't really talking to each other. We were just spending time with the Lord and praying. And I would go in the bathroom and, and shut the door. And Angela would stay in the, in the main room. And we spent a lot of time with the Lord that day. I mean, we're just praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And when we finished, we started again. And I remember that afternoon as I was praying in my room, that's in the bathroom. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about the service that night. And he showed me two things. One, he showed me an older lady and her face was flaming red. I'm not, I didn't see fire. I mean, just, just like she, you know, run up a hill, just very, very red face. And then I saw another young man, and I saw him just incredibly sullen and, and somber face. He wouldn't look me in the eye. And I knew that these were two people that the Holy Spirit wanted to minister to that night. And as I was in that place, in that bathroom, just praying, in the presence of the Lord, something got in me, for want of a better word. And so we get to the service that night, and we're worshiping, and I was up behind the keyboard, and we're singing, and it's a, it's a kind of an old-fashioned American Pentecostal-style church. It was like 180 degrees of seats and pews. It was a good size. And um, this lady comes up, and she starts to stand in front of me, and I leave the keyboard, and I go to ask her what's wrong, and she said that she had this heart condition, and I, I forget exactly what it was, forget what the circumstance was, but basically speaking, her heart was in a mess. And so I started to pray for her. And when I began to pray for her, her face got redder and redder and redder. She started to sweat profusely. which, But for the fact I'd had that vision earlier in the day, I'd have been worried about because she was not a spring chicken. And looking at what was going on, I mean, just her heart pounding and her, her face went red and sweating. And I'm thinking, this could be dangerous for her. And all of a sudden, boom, down she went like someone had just hit her. And I didn't, I promise you, I'm just holding her hand. Boom, down she went like an angel had struck her down. And so she gets up about 15 minutes later, and she starts running around the church. And I'm not trying to make fun, but she was well into her 80s. She starts running around the church, and she does a lap, and then she does another lap, and she gets to the front, and her face is still red. I said, Madam, what's going on? She said, John, my heart is pounding in my chest. And I thought, well, this is bad. Let's pray for you. She said, no, 
It's a great thing. She said, I've been in agony every time my heart beats. She said, my heartbeat is getting slower and weaker. She said, it's pounding in my chest. There's no pain. And she threw up her hands and said, I'm healed. And then just a little bit over from her was this young man. And I didn't know too much about him other than I recognized him from the guy that I saw when I was praying earlier. I don't know things to come, but the Holy Spirit does. And in that secret place, the Bible says God will show you things to come. It talks about it in 1 Corinthians, that your eye hasn't seen, your ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered into your heart, but things that God has prepared for you. And I saw this young man standing there. And so I prayed for him. I recognized him from what I've seen ahead of time. And I prayed for him, and nothing particularly dramatic happened, if I'm honest. The next morning, our hotel was across the car park from the church. Across the car park, then a road, then a hotel. So the next morning, we walked across to the service. I forget what time it started. And as we're walking in, there's this same young man, and he's greeting people at the door. And there's a crowd of about 30 people standing, staring at him. And we all thought this seemed a little bit odd. We didn't know if they were just, you know, a backup welcome team or something. We didn't know. You know, churches can be a little odd. And so they're just staring at this guy. He's looking at people in the eye, and he's just, it seemed like a, a well-trained, very friendly greeter. And so we joined the group, and I said, what's going on? They said, this young man, he's been coming to this church for seven years. He's never spoken a word. He's never looked anybody in the eye. We have never heard him speak. He walked in this morning. He had a smile on his face. He was greeting people. He's talking to people. He's saying hello to everyone at the door. He had significant mental health issues completely set free that night before. And they walked in the next morning. And I knew the pastor for years. Pastor Eric Hansen. He's now moved on to another church a few cities over. And he, we talked about it. That guy was as healed as healed could be. But here's the thing, my friend. I'm not so much talking about the fact that the Lord healed because we know that he healed. We've all experienced the healing power of God. Here's what I want to say, and I'll close with it. And, and I hope you understand the context in which I'm saying it because out of context of this message, it could seem a bit odd. But here's the reality, my friend. There is no outpouring without an infilling. And that afternoon when I was in that hotel room, Angela and I were there, and I'm in the bathroom praying, I received those two miracles. I received them in the secret place. And then when we got to the service, I was able to give them. Jesus said to the disciples, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out devils. And then he told them how. He said, because freely you've received, freely you can give. I think the trouble is many times, my friend, we're trying to give what we haven't first received. But when you and I spend time in the secret place, you will be shocked at what God does for you. And he will take an ordinary vessel like you and like me, and he will fill you with himself. And then out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And this Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit. So I want to pray in just a minute. I'm going to give an invitation. I'm hoping that pretty much everybody comes up for prayer. I'm not going to make you. There's no tasers in the room. But I can't see why you wouldn't come, if I'm honest with you. Because I want to pray for you in a minute. And I want to lay hands on you. And I'm believing that something pretty powerful is going to happen. That when my hand touches you, God's hand is going to touch you also. And there's going to be a moment where the Holy Spirit fills you afresh. There's one baptism, but there's many fillings. And the Holy Spirit fills you afresh. And what I'm praying is this, is that tonight will be like a wind in the sails of your personal relationship with God, of your time in his presence. 
And that when you get home tonight or when you wake up in the morning and you kneel down beside your bed to pray or whatever your style of prayer is, when you get after it, you're going to feel like this of the Holy Spirit blowing you into the Word, blowing you into the things of God. I'm praying that God takes your Christianity tonight and He sets it on fire. Thank you for your excitement. I'm excited enough for everybody. Let me give you another go. In a minute, you're going to cheer. I'm praying that God takes your Christianity tonight and He sets it on fire. Okay, that's better. Worship team, would you go ahead and come? Is everybody still okay? I know it's hot and sweaty, but we didn't come to church to look pretty. We came to meet with the Lord. Stand up on your feet, if you will, please. If you've got things you need to fold away or pack away, this is the moment to do it, because in just a second, you're going to need to be free to be prayed for. Don't tweet anybody right now. Don't post anything on Facebook. You can do all that in a bit. Your messages will still be there in three minutes. Right now, let's get out of the realm of distraction. Let's walk through the realm of desire and into the place of dwelling, where it's not you pouring out your heart to God. It's God pouring out his heart to you.